you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. On Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. For the past four years, California and the White House did not see eye to eye on much of anything. Well, it seems all that has changed since January, as the state and the new administration not only appear to be on the same page, but are reading and writing from the entirely same playbook on combating climate change. You can hear all about it ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm A. Martinez. Thanks for doing Friday with us. Coming up. This is the type of job there is always a crisis. If it's not a strike, it's a wildfire. If it's not a wildfire, it's a pandemic. There will be that challenge. But it will no longer be Austin Butner's challenge. We'll hear from him about why the L.A. Unified School District Superintendent is stepping down in June. That's just ahead. But first, a state of affairs, our weekly sweep of California politics. Now, it's been a week of reforms, or in some cases, just more talk about reforms, both in terms of environmental policies in the state and also in criminal justice. Joining us this week is Marisa Lagos, political correspondent for KQED and co-host of the podcast Political Breakdown, and also with us, Sammy Roth, who covers energy for the LA Times and writes the weekly Boiling Point newsletter. All right, as I mentioned, yesterday was Earth Day. And uh, Sammy, your latest piece in the LA Times is titled An Earth Day Message for California, Move Faster on Climate Change. Sammy, it's always seemed like California moves faster than any other state and even faster than some countries on climate change. So who says it needs to move even faster? Yes, I was writing about a a paper from a a group of leading climate scientists, uh, you know, folks from UC Berkeley, UC San Diego, uh, other major uh, institutions in California. And basically they looked and they said, even though California has had this claim to leadership for a long time, there are other states and other countries that on climate, um, you know, as as things move quickly are just starting to get ahead of us. I mean, Joe Biden now is is an example of that. His target is 100% clean energy by 2035 in the United States. That would be 10 years ahead of what California is targeting. United Kingdom trying to end the sale of gasoline cars by 2030. That would be five years ahead of us in California. Um, so there, there are definitely areas where, where this is, uh, you know, arguably California is not at the, the head of the pack anymore. And Marisa, Sammy just mentioned how the Biden administration is ramping those numbers up. Uh, it, w- it would seem that the Biden administration is asking Americans to live in a, in a drastically different world in some ways. Yeah, I mean, this is what he campaigned on. This is the direction President Obama was sort of putting America in before um, Trump won. And I think that what you're seeing is a not just sort of re-entering the parrot Paris Climate Accord, but a full-throated kind of political attempt to, you know, double the U.S. commitment on cutting uh, emissions below 2005 levels um, and and really thinking about this, I think, in the context, um, and I think this is a politically smart thing, of, you know, the Green New Deal, this idea that there's a direct relationship to jobs and clean energy, because as we're about to talk about, there's still a lot of pushback from fossil fuels and other industries, and that is not just a partisan line issue. And so I think that Biden is really trying to lead and and also bring other nations along, of course. So, Sammy, how does uh, Joe Biden's infrastructure bill provide that path uh, to help California achieve their goals as well as uh, the, the nation's goals? 
Well, I mean, there are a whole lot of things in it. Uh, they want to install half a million electric vehicle chargers. They want to uh, spend uh, quite a bit of money and, and sort of change uh, policies to help build transmission lines, so basically big wires to connect the places where you can generate lots of solar and wind power with the, the major cities that need that electricity. Um, they want to put a price on carbon, uh, at least to some to some extent, uh, you know, as a regulatory measure to to help incentivize uh, different economies in different parts of the country away from fossil and, and toward renewable. I mean, they have they have a they have a laundry list of, of different things. Marisa, you know, and this would be just us trying to peer into the brain of Joe Biden on this. But do you think that he might get have a sense that, OK, what he and Barack Obama did for eight years was reversed in a lot of ways in the four years that Trump was in office? I mean, absolutely. And I think that, you know, if you talk to environmentalists and, and scientists who study climate change, you know, obviously, and just common sense, like you can't get that time back. Right. And so I do think that there's a sense of urgency. I mean, the world has changed in the last four years around this issue. I think it's one of those places where we've seen just sort of a really um fat like speed up of the reckoning and 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 the support for policies um among folks you know who may not have been thinking about this even five or ten years ago but uh, yeah i think he feels under the gun and it ha we have lost time if you're talking about looking at you know those just the numbers and 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 the projections in terms of what the world will look like if nothing is done and marisa i gotta be honest i was surprised in that uh, virtual summit that joe biden was hosting i mean it's a virtual summit it's probably easier to attend than if it were somewhere physical that everyone had to go to but china russia india brazil they all took part yeah and i think that that does speak to the fact that this is um obviously not just a global problem but one that i mean in in some ways and maybe sam i can talk to this better i think the united states was an outlier the last four years in the way that we really pulled back um but of course you know biden is going to is pointing out that we're 15% of worldwide emissions. I mean, this is not an issue that the U.S. can tackle alone. Sammy, coming back to the local level of this, uh, Gavin Newsom says he's banning fracking permits starting uh, 2024. So how significant is this, Sammy, in terms of helping the state get to where it wants to be? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, fracking is is a relatively small percentage of oil production in, in California. I mean, the statistics I've seen, it's like 2% of oil production in California is from, from wells that were fracked with that uh, hydraulic fracturing technique. Um, and I think it was just, I mean, a, a few dozen new wells last year that, that were fracked. So it, really, I think the bigger aspect of the announcement that uh, Governor Newsom made today was, was, you know, at least in terms of overall climate impact, although the fracking thing has symbolic significance, um, you know, the, the other component of his announcement was he was going to order regulators to study the, the total phase out of oil production in California by the year 2045. And as far as I'm aware, there is not another government in the world that has set a hard end date for, for oil production. And that's that's not exactly what he did today. But by by asking the regulators to look at this and look at the, you know, the environmental, the economic, the, the health impacts of that, um, it seems to be a pretty straightforward way of, of setting up a regulation to do that. And Marisa Newsom's move is a bit of a reversal, and the skeptic in me thinks about you know the the recall that that what? is very close. Eh, it's <laughs> it's on the verge. It's looming. We never say, we like to say yeah. that in journalism. It's looming. But how is this ban being viewed? Well, I mean, I kind of alluded to this before. You're not seeing, it's not just Republicans who are pushing back here, although certainly we've seen some very strong statements from Republican lawmakers and others. Um, what you're seeing is a real uh, sort of geographic split. Um, Democrats and um, labor unions who represent the workers that work in, you know, oil, and particularly in the Central Valley, are very concerned about this. I think the challenge politically is going to be, I mean, I agree with you. I think that this is definitely a political calculation, but it's an interesting one. And it might tell us a little bit about where the governor thinks kind of his base is and where he's kind of maybe, you know, ceding some ground to whoever's going to be challenging him in the recall. Um, but I do think that you know, he's going to have to do what we're seeing the Biden administration work hard to do, which is to really make this connection between green jobs um, and whatever you're doing to sort of limit greenhouse gas emissions. It, it can't just be one. They're going to have to come back and say, hey, no, we know that these good jobs might be lost, but here's where we're going to transition people. And I think that that's going to be something that Newsom is going to be pressed on, and, and rightfully so. And Sammy, zeroing in on L.A. for a second, uh, tell us what L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti has said about all of this and remind us of what the national National Renewable Energy Laboratory thinks the city is actually capable of. Yeah, it was, it was just about a month ago that uh, that, that laboratory, uh, NREL, came out with a, a study for City of Los Angeles that found that 
it would be uh, totally feasible for LA to, to do 100% clean electricity by, by 2035, which would be in line with, with Biden's target, and, and even to get 98% of the way there just, just by 2030, which is uh, amazingly somehow just nine years from now. Um, and, and one of the, and so Garcetti this week came out and, and basically endorsed that target in the state of the city and said, yes, you know, we, we're going to do 2035. You know, he said that Newsom and, and the legislature he thinks should get on board with that as well. Um, one thing I think that was really interesting about that study was that it, it you know, going back to the, the jobs question you just asked them, they, they looked at, you know, what would be the overall economic impact on, on city of Los Angeles in terms of our economy and our jobs landscape from uh, doing that. And L.A. is, uh, you know, still produces a bunch of oil and has a bunch of gas fired power plants here. And, and what NREL found was that it would just be a really minimal impact on our economy overall. They said LA is, a, you know, it's got a, a, a massive annual economic output and, and this is just going to be, you know, ultimately a, a small percentage of it. So that doesn't mean that it's not relevant and impactful yeah. to those folks who might be losing their jobs. But it does mean that when you look at the big picture, it's not like that's necessarily a whole scale reimagining of our economy. And Sammy, I read that too, and I, and I hear you saying it, and I know that, you know, a lot of smarter people than me are saying this, but it's hard to believe. That's hard to believe. I mean, sometimes the uh, the science leads you to a different place than the politics might. Yeah, possibly, possibly, possibly. Glad we got a science guy here. Huh? I know. I'm glad we do. <laughs> Smartens up the whole room. Um, um, Marisa, Eric Garcetti may have 99 problems in L.A., but water ain't one. Uh, water, though, is a problem for Gavin Newsom in Northern California. What did he have to do uh, on water this week? Yeah, it's a little kind of head spinning as somebody who grew up in Southern California that we're having bigger problems in Mendocino and Sonoma counties than, you know, the desert that is Southern California. But that's because of where folks get their water um, in Mendocino and Sonoma counties. The governor did declare a drought emergency. These are places where the the, the water comes largely from the local watershed. So the lack of rain this year has really hit them hard. Um, you know, down down south, you guys rely on the Colorado River and other sources that are coming more from snow pack, which isn't as great as it could be, but it's not quite as you know badly hit. Um, and so what you're seeing is Republicans especially want a statewide drought emergency because that lets them essentially, uh, regulators essentially relax environmental standards around reservoir release, river flow standards, and things like that. Newsom is saying, no, I want to be targeted. Um, and he's pointed out, and I, and I think this is right in some ways, you know, that we are at a much better place in terms of just the water use. People are more used to conservation than they were even a decade ago. Um, but I do think that this is one of those issues, you know, back to the politics with the recall looming that um, is going to be, you know, it's, he's going to have to step carefully um, because it can, could become a big issue, especially during fire season. And the arms folded skeptic that I am and actually have my arms folded right now, I, you know, I'm not doubting the sincerity of Garcetti and Newsom's intentions I, on all the things we've been talking about today but joe biden has obviously made the environment a big priority he'll be in charge at least until 2024 and both the mayor and governor are in their 50s early 50s they're ambitious uh, marisa i mean how much of what they're doing might be setting up what their next job might be I mean, you can't disentangle this. The truth is, you know, they need to be tackling these issues regardless. I mean, the, these are the issues in front of them as, as leaders. But I do think that, yes, I mean, they're both positioning themselves as, you know, pretty progressive on these. I think Garcetti in some ways has uh, had his hands more full with some of the local fights with the unions. But I think that's coming yeah. down the pike for Newsom. And um, it, it is. It's a, it's a challenging position to be in because, you know, it's not, like I said, it's not just one political party that feels like there are risks here. And so I think um, they're both going to be looking over their shoulder quite a bit and trying to do this in a way where they can, you know, keep some of their yeah. constituents that might not love it in, in the fold. Sammy, I mean, what do you think? For Newsom and Garcetti to make policy on climate change, don't they have to make the politics work first? Well, I think that one one thing that I and I don't cover politics necessarily. I cover energy, but but one thing I've I've noticed the last few years is that it, it seems like we've moved pretty quickly from a place where uh, politicians, particularly you know, Democrats, have have moved from being more worried about moving too fast and too hard on climate to more concerned about being seen as moving too slowly and too cautiously. I mean, it, it wasn't that long ago when Joe Biden was uh, campaigning for president that he got an F grade from the Sunrise Movement for his. Uh, you know, for his climate plan, they they thought he was, you know, the worst candidate out there. And then ultimately, when it got time for the general election, when they, they see what he's been doing in office, he's, he's won over a lot of folks uh, with, with what he's proposed. And, I mean, I've, I've seen Garcetti move on this. It wasn't that long ago that L.A. was planning to spend billions of dollars reinvesting in its its gas plants. And, and he, you know, relatively recently put the kibosh on that, which didn't seem like it was ever going to happen. And so, 
I mean, yeah, you've got to make the politics work, but I think um, I think that the politics have definitely moved from a place where the biggest concern for Democrats was Republicans are going to, you know, criticize to us over this to great. What if the, you know, what if the left criticizes us for not doing enough? And from a climate perspective, that I mean, that might be a good change. That's Sammy Roth. He covers energy for the L.A. Times. Sammy, we're going straight politics from here on out, so we're going to say goodbye to you uh, and uh, talk to you down the road. All right. See you next time. Right, thanks. Sammy Roth uh, covering energy for the L.A. Times. Marisa Lagos, political correspondent. You stay right there. Because, I will. Because Rob <laughs> Bonta officially is now the state's attorney general. Governor Newsom appointed him to replace Javier Becerra. He was confirmed this week. Uh, more than a few articles that I've read on Bonta, Marisa, describe him as the most progressive AG in California history. So why is that label on him? I mean, because I think it's right. He is... Um, a departure from the sort of historic AG, although I will say Becerra was to some extent too. He was obviously a congresswoman for many years before getting appointed there by former Governor Jerry Brown. I mean, look, Bonta has a long record in the state legislature of tackling criminal justice reform, of being, you know, for abolishing the death penalty, of being against uh, a lot of the, you know, wanting more oversight of immigrant detention and and more rights for tenants and immigrants and others. Um, So, you know, compared to even someone like Kamala Harris, she came from a DA's office. Um, he is coming in with much more kind of robust uh, reform credentials, and I think it's going to be a wild ride to see kind of where it goes from here. You know, you mentioned Kamala Harris. Do you think, let's just say Kamala Harris from the past were running to, you know, next year, would she be progressive enough to, to take on Rob Bonta? Not the way she ran in no, 2010. Right? Yeah. I mean, but, you know, that was 10 years ago. Yeah, it's a yeah, different yeah. world. I mean, yeah. I think that's a really interesting question, A, because I think that, I mean, again, I think Harris has always had to contend with her race, her gender, you know, being kind of an unexpected person in law enforcement. And again, like, I mean, really think about it. Realignment hadn't happened when yeah, she was running yeah. for attorney general. You know, and we, George Gascon is uh, is uh, the guy down here in Los Angeles, um, but I know that Bonta and Gascon are allies. They've, they, they're almost the same person when it comes to what they believe and what they want to accomplish. There's a recall campaign that was started on Gascon last month. Uh, it has until the end of July. We'll see where that goes. But uh, for Gascon, now that Rob Bonta is in place, how much do you think, Marisa, that might make his reform goals maybe more attainable? That's an interesting question. I mean, you know, the AG has a lot of power, especially to investigate, say, police shootings and other misconduct. But, you know, he doesn't have direct control over Los Angeles. And a lot of what Gascon is pushing up against is really internal opposition um, and within the sort of prosecutor world. So I think having an ally in the top cop office is a good thing for Gascon. I would say I think um, Bonta might be a little better at the politics than Gascon is. Um, So I think and, and I think that'll be helpful, too. But yeah, I mean, this is a real interesting moment it's also worth noting bonta will be overseeing that investigation we learned about this week into the district attorneys association an association that gascon left because of their positions on things um like lobbying they're being a they're, they've basically admitted that they took a bunch of money they were supposed to use for environmental prosecution mm-hmm. and worker stuff um and so you know you have this whole world of reform kind of debate and push and pull and i think um you know it's it's certainly a win for reformers to have someone like bonta in that office well back to bonta for a second because considering that he has to run for re-election like right now almost i mean it's next year he's got to get uh, his job back if he wants it back. Um, his progressive policies on criminal justice reform, I, I would imagine Marisa might fuel his challenger. So who might try to come after uh, the new attorney general? Well, the folks we know are running thus far look to be running are coming from the right. Um, U.S. Former U.S. Assistant Attorney General Nathan Hochman announced he's running. Sacramento DA Anne-Marie Schubert hasn't said she is, but there is a locked website for Schubert for, D, for AG. So I think it's, uh, she's definitely toying with the idea. Um, I, you know, I, never say never, things could change dramatically. But the way the state has been trending, I have a hard time believing that somebody running uh, as a Republican or as a sort of law and order prosecutor will be able to win in this climate, you know, post George Floyd vic- uh, verdict, post the protests we saw last year. Um, but we've also seen crime increase during this pandemic. So um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, Bonta's war chest was one of the things yeah, Newsom looked man. at. Yeah, it wasn't just uh, shared beliefs on the death penalty and other policies. Yeah, Bonta has a huge war chest that's ready to defend uh, his uh, his office uh, in, in a year. So I'm sure that had to be a big reason why Newsom picked him. 
Yeah, it doesn't hurt. And I think, you know, anytime you're the governor and you have that kind of role, you're like, you don't want to appoint somebody who's about to just get thrown out of office the next year. And in Newsom's case, you want someone who's going to be an ally for you. And I think Bonta is on a lot of both policy issues and personal. Now, speaking, okay, actually speaking of the recall, the Gavin Newsom recall, 1.2 million valid signatures, uh, just shy of the 1.5 or nearly 1.5 needed. Uh, so it appears as if uh, it is close to happening. Now, if it does, gold medal winning Olympian and parent to Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, Kylie, Brody, and uh, ex-spouse <laughs> of Chris, Caitlyn Jenner, is planning to run against Newsom as a Republican, joined Kevin Faulkner and John Cox. Marisa Jenner made the announcement on Twitter where she has three and a half million followers. Uh, considering California's governor recall history of celebrity, should Gavin Newsom maybe now finally be a little concerned about this? I mean, look, I think Newsom and his people have been concerned about this for a while. I actually think compared to a month ago, um, things look way better, right? We just saw this week, we have some of the lowest coronavirus case rates in the nation. I think that's all good for Newsom. But yeah, the fact that people know who Caitlyn Jenner is in itself um, is a win, right, for her, because you have other people like Kevin Faulkner, John Cox, Doug Osi, who we know their names as political junkies, but most people don't. I mean... I, I still think this is an uphill battle to get the recall passed at all. Um, and for Jenner, I mean, she's never held public office. She hasn't voted in most elections, apparently. Um, and I know that we're seeing some comparisons to Arnold Schwarzenegger. I, I, I think some of them are apt, but some of them are a little overstated. Schwarzenegger was a huge box office star and really had already started inserting himself into some policy areas before he ran for governor. Gavin Newsom, total, total Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram has 3.7 million followers. Now, I realize followers doesn't mean voters, doesn't mean registered voters. I realize that. <laughs> are you sure you realize well, that? Well, <laughs> you know, I, I'm in the celebrity culture. I do tend to mix things up once in a while. But Jenner, okay, just on Twitter, 3.5 million, another 10.9 on Instagram, 1.4 million more on Facebook. And again, I realize not all of them are California registered voters. You know, it's around the world and everything. If Kendall and Kylie get involved, they have a combined 384 million Instagram followers. If they support their dad on this, I mean, can you imagine? Yeah, I mean, I think it could be helpful. I I, I think, though, sometimes the Twitterverse is such an echo chamber. um, And at the end of the day, like you could have them telling their followers to vote for Caitlyn Jenner and but are those people registered to vote? Like what's the ground game? Like, I mean, there's a lot of like yeah. just practical considerations. Um, and it, it is, I mean, I think as somebody, should I admit this on the radio? I've watched the Kardashians most of their seasons. I've watched it too. And most people have be, watched it, Maurice. Yeah. Don't, don't be, you know. Okay, I'm yeah. a junkie. I'll yeah. admit it. I yeah. love it. Um, I'm going to be fascinated to see how Jenner sort of positions herself, not just politically, but for sort of personality-wise. I mean, it's a tough thing to go from being a pretty cloistered celebrity to being asked the tough questions that somebody who wants to run the state of California is going to have to answer. Reality TV. You know why I like reality TV, Marisa, is because it's chaos, but I don't have to be in the chaos. I can just watch it and turn it off and go back to anything else later. And I think to your point, will they insert themselves? I mean, these are very wealthy people with their own brands to worry about. And Kim Kardashian, while, you know, she's made some deals with Trump to get the criminal justice reform she likes, um, you know, I don't know if they'll agree politically on everything. I mean, who knows, though? Who knows? Family might come first. Maurice Lagos, political correspondent, reality show junkie. She's also the (laughs) co-host of the podcast, Political Breakdown. Marisa, have a great weekend. Outed on KPCC. Thank you, eh? More Take Two coming up in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. You scare the hell out of the power structure when you know what's going on. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm LAist correspondent Jill Replogle. Orange County is experiencing rapid change, demographically, politically, and in its built and natural environments. 
I help people navigate those changes and build connections with their OC neighbors. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm A. Martinez. All week, we've looked into the environmental risks the Northeast San Fernando Valley neighborhood of Pacoima faces today, as it's one of the most pollution-burdened communities in all of California. It's all part of our series called Covering Climate Now, a global collaborative of more than 400 media outlets. After hearing from historians, activists, and community members impacted by pollution, we turn our attention now to local leadership to find out what's being done to address environmental concerns. Joining us today is Councilwoman Monica Rodriguez. She represents the 7th District in the Northeast San Fernando Valley, and that includes the neighborhood of Pacoima. Councilwoman, welcome to Take Two. Thank you for having me. Now, yesterday we spoke with activists at the local environmental justice organization, Pacoima Beautiful, and they expressed concerns over air quality and emissions that come from several sources in Pacoima, such as freeways, uh, landfills, industrial facilities, a lot more other stuff, too. Um, What other environmental concerns have you heard from constituents and community members in your district? Well, among some of the other contributing factors is the fact that we also have a very limited access to open space and trees and just all of the history of environmental injustice that has endured this area. But recently, you know, it has just been daylighted the contributions of poor air quality as a result of the operations of Whiteman Airport and the recreational use that occurs there. There was an accident that occurred back in November uh, last year that narrowly missed a number of houses that live adjacent to this runway at Whiteman Airport. And so just the the continuum of, frankly, environmental disrespect in this area where operations and facilities that are supporting broader needs across the city or across the region have continued to be the burden borne by members of this community. And so we're trying to have a complete paradigm shift and how people review and see the opportunities of this community and really change that paradigm. What have community members asked of you in terms of actions and and legislation to address these concerns? Well, we're seeking the closure of this airport. For me, it's about equity. And when we look at communities like Santa Monica that had their municipal airport being phased out with open space in its its, uh, replacement, you know, why shouldn't we have those same considerations? And at this time, the county has made it very clear, as well as commissioners who are there appointed to serve to address the concerns and the operations associated with that airport. In fact, their approach has been very disrespectful, in fact, suggesting that, you know, what they're doing is a is a community benefit. And so for us, it's about getting the respect from those that are responsible to govern and oversight the operations of this airport. But sadly, what we've continued to see is just a complete dismissal of the concerns that the community continues to raise. And uh, we're just going to keep fighting to get that final outcome that we all desire. We're talking to Councilwoman Monica Rodriguez, who represents the 7th District in the Northeast San Fernando Valley. That includes uh, Pacoima. A recent UCLA-led study found that L.A. neighborhoods with poor air quality had the highest COVID-19 death rates. And according to that study, neighborhoods with high proportions of Black and Latinos often have higher levels of air pollution. Can you tell us about some of the health risks the community faces today and how the pandemic has really, really affected residents of Pacoima? Well, sadly, um, Pacoima made national news for having the highest concentration of COVID-19 confirmed cases. Uh, We've seen this very hardworking community serve as the frontline workers that didn't have, many of them did not have the luxury of being able to just transition their work from going on to Zoom. Sadly, we had to do a commemoration of those lives that were lost disproportionately in communities like mine, where we have these individuals that, again, on top of already having respiratory issues, now contracting COVID-19, we saw the exponential rates of those that were impacted by this pandemic as a result of the pollution that has historically plagued this area. And we need to change that trajectory. This community deserves it. So many other communities deserve it. But this has been historically the kind of uh, disrespect 
in land use policy that has occurred in this area for generations. What other legislative actions are you working on and, and planning on going forward? Because we, we mentioned Whiteman Airport and that it, it everyone we've talked to seemingly has that as their main central issue around it, though. And aside from it, what other things do you think Pacoima would benefit from if they get addressed as soon as possible? Well, one of the policies that I implemented in the wake of discovering that there was a gas leak at the Valley Generation Plant was installing the mitigations to protect the community. It was unfortunate that the Department of Water and Power was not quick to notify us we had a gas leak at that facility. We are now pushing, myself and Councilwoman Martinez, whose uh, district actually includes that generation plant, uh, working to phase that out of operation in the San Fernando Valley. But in the interim, I've sought and uh, led the fight to create a mitigation fund for residents in that area. Because again, these are some of the things that our community has not gotten that many other communities have benefited from. You have folks that live around LAX, for example, who get the financial uh, support, or even if they live around Burbank Airport, to help upgrade their homes to insulate themselves from the noise. None of those types of investments have ever been Uh, offered here in this community is why I fought for a mitigation fund by the Department of Water and Power to help protect families, make sure that we have air quality monitors and that we have filtration systems installed in uh, neighboring uh, residences. And so those are some of the things that I'm leading here to help mitigate on an interim basis and address some of the concerns that have resulted in these uh, operations until we can get these facilities Closed down. And Councilwoman, you know this as much as uh, anyone else, uh, being from the area in the in in the San Fernando Valley, that the residents there have been dealing with this for a long, long time. We we spoke with the Pacoima Historical Society. Crystal Jackson was taking us through the history of that. Um, but in a in a weird way, I mean, is 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 there any silver lining to the dark cloud that was and is the pandemic that all of these things are out for everyone to hear now? No one can deny and and no one can avoid the issues that a neighborhood like Pacoima has been going through for decades and highlighted by what's happened in the past year. Absolutely. I think it's been a culmination of all of these factors. And given the pandemic, that it was clear the disinvestment and, you know, the historic underinvestment in these areas was compounded by the pandemic. And I think it has uh, helped provide the spotlight on exactly what we're talking about. When communities of color have been talking about equity issues, this is what we're talking about. There has been an injustice in the planning of communities like this historically, and we're overdue in delivering a different outcome for these areas. And I'm just proud to be here at a time where we are now seeing and, and, you know, and I've been a part of helping to champion these changes. And it does take time to unwind decades of underinvestment and the environmental impacts. But I really do believe that all of these factors have contributed to this right moment, along with the change in leadership at the federal level that I think is going to avail a lot more opportunities to make greater progress in a short amount of time. That's LA City Councilwoman Monica Rodriguez, who represents the 7th District in the Northeast San Fernando Valley. That includes Pacoima. Councilwoman, thank you very much. Thank you so much. And to learn more about covering climate now, you can go to LAIST.com. That's LAIST.com to see more of our coverage and also to hashtag Climate Emergency Week for stories from the U.S. and around the world. You know, considering that uh, LAUSD schools were getting back in action in terms of opening classrooms uh, this week, it was a bit of a shock when we found out that Austin Butner, the superintendent, was going to be leaving in June, not that much uh, far away from us now. We're going to uh, sit down, or actually Kyle Stokes sat down with uh, Austin Butner to find out exactly why he's going, and he'll tell us uh, when Take Two continues. Stay with us. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm LAist senior health reporter Jackie Fortier. That's where you see the necessity of having to educate our community. I explore how your health is directly affected by rising temperatures, wildfire smoke, dense traffic, oil drilling, airport noise, and overcrowding, and find possible solutions. LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. 
This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Amy Martinez. The L.A. Unified School District is now on the market for a new superintendent. Austin Butner led LAUSD through three eventful years from a teacher's strike in 2019 through the crisis of COVID-19. But as we reported earlier this week, Butner says he's stepping down after his contract expires in June. But why leave now? I mean, well, he says it's kind of an ideal time to go. Campuses are reopening with safety plans in place. And the district is about to get a $2 billion windfall from the state and federal governments. We'll have record funding next year in schools. So the baton gets passed to someone with a real sense of momentum, uh, and I think a real opportunity to continue the progress and hopefully accelerate this part. The outgoing superintendent spoke more about his decision to step down with KPCC's Kyle Stokes. Was it your decision to, to leave? Oh, mine and my wife's, my children. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I was offered an extension, yes, and I told the board today that I would not uh, take them up in the offer of an extension. So if you're looking for palace intrigue and all those things, you're not going to find it. Well, did they, I mean, did they, was it a situation where, you know, they were only willing to offer you a short term extension, but you wanted a, a full term? Um, is, is that no, part no, of what we, happened? We, we never, no, 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 that wasn't, that wasn't the issue. Uh, the issue was whether or not I was prepared to extend beyond the original commitment I made. And when I signed up with the school district three years ago, I uh, said so it'd be an honor and a privilege to serve. It has been, and I will serve uh, and honor my commitment to serve three full years. The timing of it is, I take your point that there's a there's a um, there's a great opportunity here. At the same time, we don't know whether students are going to be in classrooms full time. That's a huge advocacy issue for well, certain parents. I, you know, I, I, again, I, I think we have a good set of ideas. The governor's told us by the middle of June. Uh, things will more or less be reopened. That's what the governor said. This is the type of job there is always a crisis. Um, if it's not a strike, it's a wildfire. If it's not a wildfire, it's a pandemic. There will be that challenge. The specific thing I'm thinking about over the summer is the reopening agreement with the teachers union. Does it undercut negotiators uh, for the district to have a transition in the leadership team right in a time frame when theoretically that's that's crunch time for when those negotiations would be would be taking place about what fall is going to look like? So the superintendent of the school district uh, happens to be the most visible person. We have 86,000 people. in leadership, we have people who have built and handle the relationships with our labor partners on a day-to-day basis, who can carry on and do that work. And I'm absolutely confident that they're going to arrive at a good place with our labor partners on whatever needs to happen to continue to reopen schools the right way, including providing that in-person instruction we know students need. I'm wondering how you respond to the sort of argument that you have been especially since the teacher's strike ended a, a little too cozy with, with teachers' union leadership, particularly when it comes to the distance learning agreement, the campus reopening plan. Um, the, there's a, a feeling out there that you are leaving on good terms with the teachers' union, but you're also leaving with, on good terms with the teachers' union because you've given them everything that they want and done little to push back. You know, I, I think there's this narrative in our community, Los Angeles, that that just likes the fight. They think there has to be a fight somewhere to see progress. Uh, I've always stood for what's right. Uh, During a strike, I believe students needed to be in school. Um, I believe that the basis on which we settled the strike took a lot like the terms that we'd agreed to before the strike. So we stood our ground. Uh, I also believe and heard the teachers and echoed their concerns and there was a lack of adequate funding, which was creating a lot of the symptoms and friction between the school district and teachers. As we have reopened schools, 
we have done it, I think, to the highest standard of any large school district in the nation. So day in, day out, the communities we serve during this pandemic have been hardest hit by the virus. What we did was to try to anticipate, look ahead. We changed the air filters back in May of last year. We put in place a COVID testing program that have been testing everyone since September, and we started advocating for vaccines for those who work in schools in January because we knew it was the right thing for our employees, and we knew it would stand the test of time when we had to convince the families we serve that they could trust us to keep their children safe. So your argument is is basically that if you think that we were kowtowing to the teachers union, it wasn't that we were kowtowing to the teachers union, is that we were doing what pa- what p- parents were demanding in order to send their kids back. We tried to find the art of the possible, and sometimes that represents a compromise. But throughout, we said our North Star is do the best we can for students in the family. I think we've done that. You were hired um, despite concerns about the fact that you did not come from an education background. What have you learned about being an educator in this time and about pedagogy and about setting a, a, an instructional program? What, what lessons did you learn about that? I wasn't hired to be the head teacher. I'm still not the head teacher. Uh, I would have told you three years ago the same thing I tell you today. Uh, if you want to learn about pedagogy and how instruction is provided, sit down with some teachers. Listen. Uh, they'll tell you where the good ideas are. They'll tell you what's working what's not working. And that's what I've done. If you look at what we did in the primary promise, sit down with reading teachers, listen to them, ask them about the challenge of making sure we build the foundation of early literacy. And it's their set of ideas, which is, listen, we need more support in the classroom. In addition to that general education teacher, give us an extra reading teacher to work with these three children, or these six children, or this one child, uh, and we can get them there. And it's working. It's back to those fundamentals. And so I I suppose I knew that coming in. I've met since then the teachers. I've listened. Uh, Whenever I go to school every day, I ask the same thing. I think you see when I'm there, I said, how can I help? What do you need to do your job? That's what a superintendent does. A superintendent doesn't train uh, reading teachers. A superintendent empowers reading teachers to do the job they know how to do and gives them the tools to do it. And that's what I've tried to do for all of my three years. I don't tell our bus drivers how to drive a bus. They know how to do that. I make sure they're safely trained, I listen to what their needs are, um, but they do the work. Uh, the same would be true in school. The same would be true in any aspect of the services that we provide. Especially throughout the pandemic, it has been my sort of feeling, and I think a lot of people's feeling, that you are angling for elective office. Is that something that you are stepping down at this juncture to pursue? No. Are you going to run for mayor in 2022? Right now, I'm getting up tomorrow. I'm going to schools, uh, and I'm going to continue to do the job that I was hired to do, uh, and you know, we'll see where life takes me after that. Uh, I don't think elective office looks like the next chapter for me, but we'll see what life holds. I have worked tirelessly over many, many years to make a difference for the community in which I live, and I'm going to continue to do that. That's LA Unified School District Superintendent Austin Butner. He spoke with KPCC's Kyle Stokes. Butner recently announced he's going to step down in June after three years as LAUSD's leader. You know, my high school, when I went to high school a million years ago, we had such a nice grassy courtyard with trees and flowers, and there were always like hummingbirds everywhere. We never had class outside, never. We asked all the time, but our teacher said no, all all the time, every time we asked. Well, it's happening. Kids today are getting to go outside for class. Pandemic's a big reason. Find out where when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Earlier this month, Rose Cerna received a letter in the mail. Your tenancy is being terminated by reason of the fact The that journalists of LAist work for you. I'm LAist senior housing reporter David Wagner. I help Southern Californians, including renters and landlords, navigate the region's affordable housing crisis. And I help you stay on top of the ever-changing renter protections and housing policies. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism.
Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org. I'm e. Martinez. On a warm, sunny day in L.A., a black van pulls up to a park, and 11 elementary school kids stream out on the grass and begin conducting science experiments. The class is part of a pilot program to expand outdoor learning in the L.A. Unified School District, where some neighborhoods were hit especially hard by COVID. For KQED's The California Report, Deepa Fernandez visited some outdoor classrooms in Southern California to report on how they're trying to make it work. I'm in the East Hollywood neighborhood of Los Angeles. It's a tiny oasis. A chicken coop, some kale, carrots and mint growing in abundance. Hi, Deepa. Very nice of you to join us at Kings Elementary. Karina Salazar is the principal of this L.A. Unified School. She's taken me to one corner of the school's playground, right by a thriving edible garden. Where our students come out, they get their hands dirty. That was pre-pandemic. COVID hit this area of L.A. hard. And with students at home learning on Zoom, the campus and surrounding streets have been very empty. But that's about to change. When discussions began about bringing students back to campus, Principal Salazar saw an opportunity to use the outdoors as a classroom. We really were inspired on how to take heat island zones and make more green spaces so that they're healthier environments for staff and students. Like so many schools in LA, this campus has a large outdoor play area, but much of it is blacktop. Yet Salazar saw the possibility for creating classrooms in various parts of the playground. Principal Salazar leads me into the kindergarten play area, which was mostly blacktop. Welcome to our kindergarten outdoor classroom. Now it's like a nature clearing in a blacktop desert, with little wooden tables and wicker armchairs for the children, a wagon with baskets for the teacher to wheel the lesson supplies around, all atop a bright green woolen rug. The school had help from Claire Latanay, Associate Professor of Landscape Architecture at Cal Poly Pomona. We want intimate spaces. So you see the raised planter with shrubs growing on them. And these are, these are shrubs that will grow two or three feet tall and give a sense of separation. The classroom was designed to take advantage of the morning shade, but has large outdoor umbrellas for when the afternoon sun hits, says Principal Salazar. Our classroom spaces are meant to be flexible. We can transport them to other locations. The school has four of these outdoor classrooms set up across campus. It's a pilot program done in partnership with Green Schoolyards of America. It's easy to see why kids would love being out here, sitting in a circle on tree stumps instead of chairs. But what about the teachers? More than half of them indicated that they would want to be out here at least more than half of the day. Salazar knew her staff would need training to transition to teaching outdoors. Our school team spent a whole weekend in professional development session by grade span so we could really customize the content. As I'm being shown around, so two teachers arrive to the otherwise empty beautiful, campus. Beautiful environment that we have for Dennis Stain teaches Spanish immersion second grade. He's with another teacher, Anna Maschek. They're seeing the outdoor classrooms for the first time and can't quite believe it. I'm so excited about this. Especially with COVID and everything, allowing the kids to be outside, allowing them to see, to smell, to touch, to hear, all these things that they haven't really been able to do. Salazar says the key is having teachers be able to opt in and sign up to use the classrooms when they want. It's not being forced on them. It's really an element of choice and teacher empowerment. Kingsley students will rotate between their regular inside classrooms and the outdoor spaces. But over in Orange County, students at an elementary school there have been back in school since November. And they made it happen in part by using their school's outdoor space more full-time. If your name rhymes with Derek, you may wash your hands, Derek. Here we go. <laughs> this charter school in Aliso Viejo, the Journey School, had full-time outdoor kindergarten classrooms long before COVID hit. The space is strategically set up to allow for different kinds of learning. The children oh, garden. Here's Justin with his gardening gloves. Are you doing some gardening today? I want to help Dara pull out the weeds. There's an area with wood pieces so they can build. I got this 
kindergarten classes are based on the Waldorf principles of learning through play. School director Gavin Keller says being outdoors has helped keep everyone healthy, even through the winter COVID spikes. This is the fours. This is Mr Kill Collins' first grade class. One third of the class are six feet apart on long picnic tables under tent canopies just outside the door to their classroom. It's math time and Kill Collins keeps his eye on his outside kids through the classroom windows. Hey Lily and friends outside, have you written your name where it says name? Mr Kill Collins has his class split into three. Kids inside with him, yes, kids ahead. outside at the tables, and some on Zoom. Jam a little louder, I can't hear you, honey. He's live zooming a math lesson. They go all the way to 20. The teacher is standing right by the window with his laptop set up and a mic so he can live zoom. All right, outside friends. We're looking for the first stop on the fours. Matthew, do you know what it is? He swivels his head to see the children outside, and an aide is present to help them if they need it. What is it, man? Kill Collins is juggling a lot. But he seems able to have eyes on all his kids, whether they are inside, outside, or on Zoom. Gavin Keller says his teachers have really embraced this method, and parents love that their kids can be back almost full-time. But... There are some challenges in having an outdoor classroom. A big one is the weather. We had a storm three weeks ago that came through that was fairly significant, and we were unable to offer that instruction outdoors. And in that scenario, we pivoted to remote learning for those students that were scheduled to be outside. Keller says even if the CDC eventually removes the social distancing requirements and all children can fit back in the classroom, the outdoor setup will stay. I think that it's really handy for teachers to have an outdoor learning classroom immediately adjacent to their classroom building for students that might need a break, for small group work, for just getting outside and and doing some, some, some work in the fresh air. So why is it that so few schools are embracing these outdoor opportunities, especially now when millions in new federal and state funding is flowing into districts to support schools during the pandemic? I asked LA Unified board member Nick Malvoin. I really think it's a failure of imagination. I think we've been dead set in our ways on what a classroom should look like going back to when many of us were kids, but even, you know, a a century before. And it's a classroom with desks and with walls. The pandemic has provided the moment, Malvoin says, for educators to embrace the outdoors. And he, along with a growing movement, is pushing for more LA schools to replace desks with tree stumps and four walls with planted shrubs. For The California Report, I'm Thipa Fernandez. And Thipa Fernandez is a reporting fellow at Pacific Oaks College, which is funded in part by First Five LA. If you missed any part of Take Two, and I know I say this pretty much after every show, but it was a good one. Really good show today. You really ought to go wherever you get your podcasts and listen to it. Uh, There we will be waiting to be heard by you. You can find us on Twitter at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A Martinez LA, at A Martinez LA, good for Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back Monday at 2. Marketplace is next. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.